full disclosure, I bought locusts and honey in order to bring them here today and challenge anyone to eat them in front of us. But so what I what I thought I was getting was dried locusts because insects are I mean super edible. We've eaten them for the entirety of of human's life. I've eaten crickets many times. Um, but what I got was uh, lightly roasted locusts for uh, reptiles, and they were still juicy. So I figured nobody would want a juicy locust, and so <laughs> I threw them away. Sorry. I'll bring some other edible insects for you another day when it fits the scripture. I don't know how many other scriptures in the Bible are about eating bugs, but so it goes. Hey, actually, while we're talking about bugs, can you um, put up the slide up here? I have a question. Does anybody know the difference between locusts and grasshoppers? One of them's a locust, one's a grasshopper. Anybody want to guess which is which? Call it out, yeah. You think the yellow one's a grasshopper? So who thinks the yellow one is a locust? Who thinks the brown one is the locust? Oh, so it's pretty even. Okay. I'll tell you. Okay. I did, yes. He was with me. We bought them together. Uh-huh. When I first looked this up, I thought the brown one was the locust because it's bigger. Right? Turns out it's not. The yellow one is the locust. The brown one is the grasshopper. Now, anybody know the actual biological difference between the two? Trick question. There is none. They are the same thing. Basically the same thing. All right, we can switch slides. People don't want to look at bugs. <laughs> so everybody knows what grasshoppers are, right? We've got millions of grasshoppers all over the place, little things, they jump around. They usually kind of are solitary creatures. They don't like to be with a big group of grasshoppers. However, certain species of grasshoppers, if they get touched too many times, so I couldn't find the exact number, but upwards of like eight times within a two-hour period, their brains start to produce a ton of serotonin. And that serotonin, which those of you who are on antidepressants know is a super good drug for your brain, makes them real happy. And it makes them want to go touch other grasshoppers. And so they go and they touch other grasshoppers because they're full of serotonin and they're super happy. And then those grasshoppers then feel like touching other grasshoppers. And while we're touching each other, we might as well make some babies, right? And so they end up making lots of eggs. And the more serotonin that is in their brains and in their bodies, yes, they have brains. Isn't that wild? The, their body starts to change, physiologically change. Their color changes. Their appetite changes. They suddenly want food that previously was poisonous, but now they need in order to survive. And grasshoppers, uh, the eggs only take about six weeks to go from egg to mature adult. So you get a couple that bump into each other at first, 
And then they become a couple more that bump into each other, and they all make a ton of eggs, and those eggs hatch, and then they start bumping into each other. And before you know it, you have a swarm of locusts that can destroy entire fields in a matter of minutes. Has anybody ever seen a video of a, like, a swarm of locusts? There was a really bad one in uh, northern Africa recently. I saw a video of somebody out there with just a flamethrower just trying to roast these things out of the sky because it looked like a sandstorm. It is a ridiculous thing that happens of like biblical plague proportions and all because some grasshoppers got too close to each other. <laughs> and how many of us can relate to that? <laughs> Sometimes I just want to be alone but instead, I keep bumping up to anxious people who keep making me anxious. And then in my anxiety, I bump against someone else and I make them anxious. And then uh, pretty soon, we are all a vibrating anxious mess and we're destroying fields. I mean, metaphorical fields. <laughs> it goes both ways. <laughs> so before you know it, you go from being a semi-peaceful system to feeling like a wind chime and a thunderstorm. Now, please don't misunderstand me. When I'm talking about anxiety and anxious systems, I'm not talking about the very real and necessary response to suffering in the world, to injustice in the world, to staying up at night imagining solutions to make the world a better place. I'm not talking about that kind of anxiety. What I'm talking about is a sense of overall general dis-ease within a system, a family system, a church system, a government system, a national system, whatever it might be. An anxious system is a little bit like having a board meeting when there's the sound of machine gun fire in the distance. And it's, you're not an imminent threat, but the sound of that makes everything more tense. You can't focus on anything because of the nervous energy in the air. And I know you all have felt this to some extent. You might be feeling it right now. Some of you may be embedded within a system like that today. Maybe it's somebody in your family that you have to tiptoe around for fear of them exploding at you. Or maybe you live every moment with this nagging feeling like there's not going to be enough money to pay the bills this month. Maybe you're carrying somebody else's anxiety and you've been carrying it for so long, it feels like it might just be your anxiety now. Maybe you've been living this way for so long that this feels like normal and you cannot imagine anything different. First of all, may I say you are not alone. Second of all, let me say there is a better way. And third of all, that better way is a gift that you can then bring to the world. You know, it occurs to me when thinking about anxious systems that there's, there are anxious systems that are anxious because people are dysfunctional and they just haven't done their inner work and they're projecting all of their problems out on everyone else and messing up the system. That happens all the time, but more often it seems that Anxious systems are intentionally there so a person can stay in power. That anxiety becomes a tool of control for them. I remember uh, in 2020, there was a series of ads that were being run on YouTube that continually showed up on Charlie's tablet. 
it was a um, uh, this political ad, and it would start with fires raging and riots and machine guns and people screaming and people doing drugs and and then it would say this is joe biden's america vote to keep america great and it terrified him this little five-year-old brain could not handle that this was joe biden's america oh my goodness I'm so scared, we need to do something about it. And he couldn't sleep at night because of that anxiety. And of course he couldn't, because that was the point of the ad that was supposed to do that to grown-ups who could vote as well. It was supposed to make you feel afraid to instill images of unrest and chaos and uncontrollable violence. It was supposed to unsettle you so that you would stop imagining a better world. So that in your anxiety and fear, you would vote for whoever promised to take it away. Ironically, the anxiety they themselves created, they are the only ones who can take it away. It's the same old song and dance that's been used by abusive spouses, politicians, televangelists, and Roman Empire emperors throughout time. If you can jostle the system up enough, like a group of grasshoppers, you can create a swarm of locusts. And as Alexander Hamilton warned us, you can, uh, after throwing things into confusion, you may, quote, ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. If people are anxious, they are not able to imagine a better world. If you are consumed with worry about surviving in this financial system, you don't have the ability to dream a new one. But as I said, there is another more subversive, radical, and dangerous way that is hiding in plain sight in our reading today. In the most unassuming place, not from the guy who's eating bugs. No, it comes from verse one of chapter one of Mark. Mark doesn't start with baby Jesus like Matthew and Luke. Mar uh, Mark doesn't start with a grand theological treatise like John does. Mark begins with the unassuming words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, to most of us listening, that probably just sounds like an innocuous preamble, right? Like, once upon a time, or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But it's not. This sentence at the beginning, this unassuming line, is so deeply dangerous and subversive. Let, let me try to explain. Um, the word for good news in the beginning of the good news, euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelize, ev evangelical. It means good news. Um, pretty innocuous. It has a pretty unassuming linguistic history up to that point. You know, good news, you have a healthy baby boy, right? That euangelion, it's just good news. Up until about the time of the Roman Empire, because the Roman emperors, starting with Augustine, co-opted this word. It became, it became the beginning of all of their announcements to the people. So you might hear from Augustus, good news, gospel, euangelion, the Egyptians have been subjugated. 
Good news, the emperor's son is born. Good news, your taxes are going up so we can build another stadium. That one still happens. <laughs> the good news of the emperor was a reminder to the people that they were small and they had no real control to fight back. The people in Jesus' region in his time were living with potentially 90% poverty. 90% of the people were living in poverty or just about to fall into poverty. They had crushing taxes and this increasing racial tensions with the Samaritans that they shared a land with. And all of that, by the way, the inequity, the racial tensions, all of that was created by the Romans and the Herodians. Like we always talk when we talk about the, the Good Samaritan story and how the Jews and Samaritans hated each other and it's a thousands of years old uh, animosity between these two groups, but it's not. Historically speaking, there was just a little bit of animosity there between the two groups of people as what happens from time to time. But the Herodians and the Romans, they stoked that into a full on race war in order to keep the people subjugated by fighting themselves instead of fighting the power. That is the good news from Rome. Good news for the emperor and good news for the top 1%, but chaos and anxiety for everyone else. Nobody can relate to that. But the emperors thought they deserved the best and why wouldn't they deserve the best? After all, the emperor is the living manifestation of the great gods. Shouldn't the emperor get whatever the emperor wants? After Caesar Augustus took control, he started this myth that Julius Caesar, his predecessor, the first emperor, was divine. In fact, a couple of years after Julius Caesar's death, Halley's Comet went through the sky, and Augustus took that as an opportunity to tell the people, that is the soul of Julius Caesar ascending to heaven. So then what does that make Julius Caesar's adopted son except the son of God. And so from Augustus onward, the emperors referred to themselves as the son of God, occasionally the redeemer of mankind, um, the great savior of all. Um, trying to think of all the little epithets that we've found. Nero called himself the benevolent savior of the entire world which is ironic because he was insane. Um, so there's inscriptions all over the empire hailing the emperor as the son of God. So one might reasonably expect this sort of announcement from the, the town square. You might hear, the beginning of the good news of Emperor Tiberius, the son of God. Your good and gracious savior has begun construction on the great Colosseum in honor of his total victory over the Judeans. Rejoice for favor has been shown upon us. That's Roman good news. Violence, theft, total control. Meanwhile, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God, begins with a homeless priest eating bugs and speaking out publicly against the corrupt political and religious leaders of the day. It begins with John the Baptist standing in a river, being present to individual people where they are as they approach him in whatever stage of life they're in. It begins by being with individuals struggling to make sense of the world. 
It begins with a vision that we do not need to accept this reality as the only reality. That another world is possible. That the kingdom of God is among us. It's here right now. It's within you. It's also on its way. It's coming. It is a hope that is to come. It is a reality that is partially present today. It is a peace that can fill your heart and the peace that can overflow from you into this anxious system. It is the antidote to the abusive systems of control that we all accept like the air that we breathe. It is a freedom to dream a new world into being. And now at some point along the way, the church became champions of the status quo. The church found some very creative ways in the medieval period to create anxiety among people <laughs> in order to keep them under control. But in those early days, we were countercultural dreamers. We weren't afraid to call out fear-mongering strong men who were trying to control us. To, and we weren't afraid to take a stand for what is right. The church used to be pretty punk rock. Um, and I honestly think we're better when we are that. So how do we do this? How do we live into the good news of Jesus Christ and not fall into the good news of Caesar? I think we do it like John the Baptist. One baptism at a time. One person at a time. John the Baptist did not baptize groups of people. He didn't put 36 people out there and say, everyone underwater now and everyone come up and we're all forgiven. One by one, people brought their failings, their misgivings, their sins, their struggles, where they were on their journey. One by one, they came to him and they made a promise to repent, not to do penance, as that word has been understood, but metanoiate, to turn around, to be fundamentally different, to be transformed. John stood there in that river, giving the gift of his presence and allowing people to be individuals in front of him. And sometimes that is all people need when they are all riled up. Not solutions, not shared anger, not just a place to vent, but a non-judgmental, non-anxious, non-problem-solving presence. Like the relational equivalent of a weighted blanket. <laughs> it seems too simple. It seems too reductionistic. But it is so powerful to simply be a receptacle for somebody else's anxiety that you can disperse down into the ground like a lightning rod. Simply showing up for people can make all the difference. I have a friend who, if I, if I haven't heard from him in more than a few weeks, I'll get a text message that just says, hey, buddy, how you doing? He apparently, he's a professor, he apparently emails every single one of his first-year students in their third year to see how they're doing. He's got a reminder. When we were together recently, he asked me um, what exactly Nicole's birthday was because he wants to know uh, when he can celebrate those, those milestone birthdays. He's never met her. Um, but he has a, a, this very sweet spirit of presence. 
And that kind of periodic text message at times can mean the world. It can mean the, the difference between um, descending deeper into anxiety and feeling seen and loved and heard. Perhaps it looks like just inviting somebody out for coffee, a warm meal. However you are best equipped to be present, do that. Do your best to not try to solve the problem that's causing the anxiety. You can't. Do your best not to amplify the anxiety. I know it's tempting to be like, he said, what? That, I'm going to stab him in the face if he comes, right? Like, it is tempting to amplify the anxiety. But if you're trying to do this, try to simply be present, to listen, to be a receptacle, to be a, 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 an instrument of peace. Watch as your non-anxious presence gives that person permission to simply exhale. Watch as the swarm of locusts within them slowly dissipates. Then watch that person share that gift of presence with another person trapped in that system of anxiety. And watch as slowly the system itself is transformed from within not through control and coercion, but through the simple gift of your presence. Watch as fear mongers lose their power. Watch as we free people to dream a new world. Watch as the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, moves like yeast throughout dough. Watch it happen. Make it happen. <laughs> <laughs>